Hi. <laughs> Welcome to the Mythcard Academy. <laughs> this sorry, I'm laughing because uh I uh I, I neglected to unmute my audio, which is brilliant. Okay, so I was just saying, welcome to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number three until we have faces. Uh, and tonight is when things really get real and the story really begins to take off. We've done a lot of setting up, understanding the world, coming to understand the characters, coming to understand in particular the character of Orwell Moore. Uh, tonight we really begin to see the crisis of the story beginning. We know from the start that Orwell was complaining about what the gods have done to her. Right? We get in uh, chapter four a portentous hint at this um, when Redival has joined them. And what, um, you know, and we start hearing about the things which Orwell calls, you know, the first, the first, you know, the first blows, the first knocks of what will, of the, you know, the hammer blow that is going to, that is going to destroy them. Um, and that is coming up, right? That that begins here in chapter five. Um, the other thing that I was just saying before, while, while skillfully still muted, um, was to express a kind of compassion for people and understanding for people who've had a hard time getting through this book the first time on their own, uh, you know, without people to discuss it with, mostly because it, for me, it's all about expectations. This book comes out of nowhere, right? Um, I remember, you know, so, uh, you know, as for so many people, my first introduction to C.S. Lewis was Chronicles of Narnia when I was a kid. Um, and um, I came to the Space Trilogy later, uh, fortunately later, um, and that I didn't love it at first. I've come to appreciate the Space Trilogy, especially the first two books, more uh, as I have got, I've, as I've gotten older. Um, but I was at least, I was okay with them because I knew the context. I'm like, okay, I know that Narnia was fantasy and this is science fiction, right? So, you know, my expectations, I won't say they were exactly appropriately calibrated necessarily, but I was prepared for the difference that I found, the kind of difference that I found. When I came to Till We Have Faces, I was expecting fantasy again. And I had no other context for it. Um, and it was not what I expected. Very different from my expectations. Um, and I was just comparing it to how difficult it was to read The Silmarillion for me for the first time when I discovered that as a teenager. Again, because when, you're, when you are kind of contextualizing things in one way, right? When you're, when, you're, when you're expecting a certain thing and it's not what you're getting, it can be hard to receive what you're being given. Right. Because you're constantly looking for the thing that isn't there. Right. For the thing that you were expecting. Um, but um, anyway, I am. Um, uh, until we have faces, one of the things that also makes it challenging. Um, and I say and I've said this before, challenging, especially for Christian readers of C.S. Lewis, even quite mature Christian readers of C.S. Lewis who love have read like most of the rest of what he wrote. You know, I've read his fiction, his nonfiction, um, and are, you know, come to Till We Have Faces with an open mind and ready for more edification and don't know how to deal with it, don't know how to handle it. I think that this, the stuff we're going to see tonight in chapter five is also going to be um, 
a good example of stuff that puts people off from this. I think I've shared before, I don't think anybody else in my immediate family, um, big C.S. Lewis fans as they are, has ever succeeded in finishing this book. Um, so, uh, and, and I, we'll, 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 we'll talk about that a little bit. What C.S. Lewis gives us in this book is something genuinely complex. Um, it is uh, anything but a simplistic sort of one-sided view of things. Um, he does a remarkable job of looking at things from multiple sides. We see his um, his commitment to that in the his choice of Orwell as the narrating figure, right, as the first-person narrator. The fact that he's going to tell this story about the gods um, from the point of view of this, you know, pagan queen who um, who hates the gods, doesn't disbelieve in them, but hates them. Um, you know, that should be our first hint, right, that um, we're going to be getting some perhaps unexpected connection, certainly unexpected if what you're expecting is somebody, for instance, um, this is a conversation I've had with some folks, again, especially Christian readers of Till We Have Faces, and they're kind of, they're waiting for like a Christian voice, right? Like somebody they can, they can hold on to, right? Some kind of ground on which to, clear ground on which to stand, right? Okay, okay. So there's like, even if like, so Orwell's perspective might be like, you know, different from from mine, but there's there's got to be somebody, right? Is there some character, right, in whom we can trust, like you know, some character who who is who is giving us, you know, a, this, a sort of familiar framework, and that we can we can sort of understand things through the way that that character is helping. You know, I mean, often you'll get that kind of thing, right? Um, and he's not going to give it. It will never happen in this book. Um, instead, we are left watching all of these different people whom I'm convinced Lewis doesn't believe that any of them is correct, right? Nobody is like a normative voice. There is nobody who is like expressing what C.S. Lewis, the author himself, believes to be true, right? Um, that's not how this book works. That's what I mean when I say it is. It is. It is the opposite of simplistic. Um, it's. It's quite complex and de- and very demanding. Therefore, of us, in order for us to like, fig- like, where are we supposed to be standing as readers? Like, how are we supposed to be responding to Orwell? Uh, I mean, she's a very compelling character, and so it's very natural to be on her side in lots of ways. You know, and we can see, especially as we see her being mistreated and misunderstood and underappreciated by her family in the early chapters and all of this other, all of this other stuff. Um, and yet, if we just take her side, right, if we just orient ourselves firmly, like over, behind Orwell's shoulder, right, and, and kind of put ourselves intellectually and emotionally in her camp, we're going to miss a lot, in fact, um, it's um, it's complicated. It's very and as and as I say, for this reason, very demanding. Um, there's no secure place to stand. 
Christian or non. I mean, I, I say this, in, this is a particular thing that I think that Christians struggle with um, because of the expectations that Christian readers bring to a C.S. Lewis novel, right? Um, but I think it's true of everybody that it's, it's, it's a demanding book in the sense that it really asks a lot of you in these ways. Um, but um, yeah, no, Emily, there isn't a reason. I, Emily was asking like, you know, as a Christian reader myself, I'm not seeing why it should have a Christian compass. Um, I, it, it need, I'm not at all saying that it is supposed to. I'm just saying in my experience talking with people, that is what people were either actively expecting or sort of wishing for. Um, the fact that they didn't know where to stand you know, where the, where they were supposed to stand. Again, that's, that's, it's, that, I think that's an especially acute challenge for Christians who come with a particular expectation to a C.S. Lewis book. But I think it's a challenge for everybody actually, who's, uh, um, reading this, but, um, um, anyway. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Eric, you're right. Uh, this is my first reading, and I mostly just feel great compassion for Orwell without necessarily agreeing with her, but I suspect she's going to learn some stuff. No spoilers, but um, yes, Orwell will learn some stuff. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, but um, yes, and Leaf of Starlight, you're right. I think that it does have to do with sort of Lewis's reputation, and I, 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 whether it's fair or not. And I agree, I don't think it's quite fair. Um Someday, uh, I suspect that sooner or later, we will discuss one of the Chronicles of Narnia, presumably book one of the Chronicles of Narnia, which, of course, is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. There is obviously no other candidate for the first volume of the Chronicles of Narnia. However, um, someday we may talk about The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe as the first uh, volume of the Chronicles of Narnia. And when we do, we'll talk about this. Um, that is, responses to Lewis, um, uh, responses and expectations, because it's a major issue with the with the the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, but anyway, um, <laughs> we will also, of course, when we discuss it, explain why there um, can be no to real opinions about what volume one of the Chronicles of Narnia is. But first, let's get, um, let's go back to Till We Have Faces. <laughs> let's actually dig in and get going here. Okay, okay. Um, you will remember that we ended last time when Orowal was being told by Redival and Bata, their former nurse, uh, the, uh, the gossip and, uh, tattletale Bata, um, uh, about Psyche being uh, chased out of town, like her being in her being in danger, her uh, running through the town um, with people um, after her. How the the crowd had shifted. We were talking about in that context. We were talking about how um, we get this fascinating example of sort of. Ambivalent data being presented, ambivalent in the sense of you can interpret it either way, right? The data in this case being Psyche goes out and lays hands on hundreds of sick people, right? Some of them get better, some of them do not. Uh, the initial response is that she brought healing and they are worshiping her like a goddess. And 
Then, soon afterwards, she's being blamed for the plague, called the accursed, and um, saying that those she laid her hands on died, which, of course, in some cases, undoubtedly true, right? Um, so, anyway, so we're, ta- we're looking at how the, uh, the, the, the people had turned. Um, we go from that particular shift, that is the shift of how the people of Gloam were responding to Psyche, um, and uh, to this conversation between Orwal and Psyche about the incident. Then it all came out. She had gone, very foolishly, I thought, into the city without a word to any of us. She had heard that her old nurse, the free woman whom I had hired to suckle her, and who now lived in town, was sick with the fever, and Psyche had gone to touch her. For they all said my hands cured it, and who knows, it might be. I felt as if they did. I told her she had done very wrong, and it was then, and, and it was then that I per- fully perceived how much older she had grown since her sickness. For she neither accepted the rebuke like a child, nor defended herself like a child, but looked at me with a grave quietness, almost as if she were older than I. It gave me a pang at the heart. Um... This is one of those passages I'm not going to talk about a whole lot right now, but it'll be important later, so I wanted to make sure to note it in passing. And the thing to note in passing as we look at this passage is the shift in the relationship. We've seen the people as weathercock, to use the phrase that Orwell uses later on, how they're turning about with the wind. Um, first they reverence her, now they're condemning her. Psyche, that is. Um, and immediately upon under- hearing about that shift in their relationship, we are told of a change um, in or very quietly. Again, this is not a passage that ever jumped out at me the first couple times I read this book. Um, but we can see here, Orwell raised Psyche like a mother. Psyche had no other mother than Orwell, right? Psyche's mother died in childbed, um, and nobody else cared for her. Um, we have seen the way that Orwell talks about Psyche, right? Um, the love that she has for Psyche, the love and admiration uh, that she has for Psyche, the care that she takes of Psyche. And we can see throughout Orwell's description of this, the maternal position that she adopts in relationship to Psyche. She's her older sister, older half-sister, right? But she adopts this very clearly um, maternal role. She had gone very foolishly, I thought, right? Um, Her assessment of Psyche's behavior, right, had gone into city, very foolishly, I thought, into the city without a word to any of us. Like Psyche needs Orwell's permission, right? Like Like Orwell is in a position to, you know, uh, sort of judge her behavior in this way. And it, it comes out perfectly naturally, right? This is just, this is clearly a spontaneous expression of how Orwell thinks of Psyche, right? How how she imagines that, that relationship. And then, of course, we see again in the third paragraph that same thing coming out um, uh, in her... In her account, in Orwell's account of what she said to Psyche. We only get it indirectly, right? We don't get the quote. Um, did we ever establish how much older Orwell is? No, we're not told exactly. Um, I 
thinking about how Orwal is described in um, in chapter, you know, the end of chapter one, beginning of chapter two, um, especially the end of chapter one when the uh, the the new mother-in-law comes in, right? The new queen, Psyche's mom. Um, she sounds like she's still a child. Um, uh, like what I'm trying to figure out is like, do we have reason to think that Orwal has hit puberty by the time that like is she? Does she think of herself as a woman? Is she treated at all like a woman? Um, because by the way, in this society, it seems perfectly clear that puberty is. As in most ancient societies, puberty is the moment when you become an adult, right? Um, uh, I mean, it's very clear. I, I can't imagine Psyche's mother was... I mean, what's the limit you would put on how old Psyche's mom probably was? I'm thinking 15, 14, maybe. I mean, she's a young girl. She's clearly has gone through puberty, right? She is sexually mature enough to bear a child. Um, but she's clearly a young bride, a younger daughter of the king, right? Who was farmed out. So yeah, and and the the description of her terror and how little she looked when she was unwrapped from her clothing and everything, um, and how she, Orwal even seemed to accept her as more like a peer, than certainly than like a mother, right? So I think there's not even a huge age gap between Psyche's mom and Orwal herself. Um, so yeah, 14, I, I agree. 14, 15 is the, the oldest, I think, likely that Psyche's mother was when she died. Um, my guess, and it's only a guess. We don't have, the story doesn't really give us anything to, 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 to fix it on. Um, but I would guess that it was somewhere in the, that Orwell was probably 11 to 13, maybe. A, a few years younger, probably. Than the queen, maybe herself not having gone through puberty, though we don't, we know when Redival goes through puberty, right? That comes into the story. Um, you know, when Redival is caught kissing Tarin under the window. Um, that's never an issue with Orowal, right? That never features in the story. Um, but, um, and yeah, curious chance, I, I think that that's a really interesting way of thinking about it. Um, uh, Age isn't tied linearly to the passage of time anyway. She grows older, it seems, from wisdom, not years. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, she is she is growing wise. And um, that she steps into an adult role. Like, let, let's imagine she's 10. Um, she's 10 when, when the mother-in-law comes, right? Which would put her 11-ish, on the way to 11, at least, right? when Psyche is born and the queen dies, um, that she would take upon herself at the age of 11 the, 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 the kind of role of being a m maternal figure to Psyche might seem strange to us from our perspective when we think about ourselves at the age of 11 or our children at the age of 11. Um, but in this kind of world and it, with the kind of life that Orwell has lived as she describes, it's not really that surprising. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. So, um, agreed, Emily, ancient societies certainly did not have the same concept of childhood that we do. No, like I said, once you're, once you, you know, have hit your growth and are sexually mature, 
you're ready for adult life, marriage, you know, work, war, whatever it might be, um, you know, childbearing. Um, that's the way of things. Um, uh, <laughs> my wife will sometimes say, uh, my younger son, Matthias is 15 now. And, uh, you know, sometimes when he, if he says something like, you know, I don't think I'm qualified for that, you know, she'll say something like, you know, 500 years ago, you could have been King. Right. Um, but, uh, anyway, yeah. So, um, uh, yeah. Anyhow. Um, and yes, I think Sphinx, I think you're right. I think that many of us have known people of about that age, right? Like 10, 11, 12, um, who have younger siblings who are born then and who do, uh, adopt, um, a very mature, um, you know, caretaker relationship with them. Right. Anyway. Okay. So, uh, what whatever the age gap was exactly, Orwell has. We also, by the way, don't know how old Psyche is now. My guess is that Psyche is probably same, like fourteen or so now, fourteen, fifteen. She's full grown. She's grown tall, um, and she, I believe she is understood to be sexually mature. Like she's gone through puberty. That's sort of the changes that have come upon her. Um, you know, in the, in the, the, you know, remember the different stages of beauty that she grows through in, 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 or in Orwell's, uh, description and stuff. So I suspect so. Um, but, um, anyway, okay. So, but look at the beginning of that third paragraph there. I told her she had done very wrong. And it was then that I fully perceived how much older she had grown since her sickness. I told her she had done very wrong. That maternal role that Orwell assumes, with Psyche. Like, it's just, that's, that's what their relationship is, right? Here's the other thing I would emphasize that we mustn't forget. We're not getting, we have to remember the frame of this story. We are not getting this live action, right? When she's, when we see this evidence, especially, this is why Orwell describing this through indirect speech is particularly important when she's not quoting herself, but she's not giving us dialogue in the moment. Instead, she's relating to us what had happened and what she said. I told her she had done very wrong, right? Um, this is, on the one hand, evidence of how she felt at the time. It is also evidence of how she feels now as an old woman writing this book. Um, do we see... Where do we see distance between what her perception was at the time and what she sees later? Sometimes she'll openly comment on that, right? Um, what she's learned later or how she understands this thing, especially some of the things that her father did as king, right? From her later perspective as the aged queen of Gloom, um, uh, as we saw in the opening paragraphs. But I do not see a lot of distance here. Um, I do not see her distancing herself from this point of view. The way in which she describes her maternal attitude towards Psyche does not suggest to me that she has altered that perspective much over time. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and notice that she is, she receives a pang 
when she notices how non-childishly Psyche responds. She neither accepted the rebuke like a child, nor defended herself like a child, but looked at me with a grave quietness, almost as if she were older than I. This is an important moment when Psyche is acting as if she and Orowal are on the same level. But we have reason to think from this passage that that perspective is not reciprocated by Orowal. She feels a pang noticing it. She doesn't condemn it or anything, but I think we can see a um, a gap between how the two of them view their relationship. Psyche is now acting as if she is a peer of Orwell. Orwell is acting very much as if she is still in a maternal position. And of course, it must be pointed out, in connection with the discussion we were just having about ages, Psyche's version is the one that's actually truer to fact. Orwell has loved her and cared for her as a mother, but she is not her mother. She's her sister, in fact. As sisters or half-sisters, they are peers. They are two of the three daughters of the king. Different in ages, right? And of course, this does not in any way cancel out the love and care that Orwell has provided for Psyche. Um, but if we had in the moment to judge which one's right and which one's wrong, or rather which one's attitude is more in sync with actual the reality of their relationships, it would be Psyche and not Orwell here. Um... And yes, Jocelyn, you are absolutely right. The the pang at the heart, this is not a bad thing. That's very natural. And, you know, all of all of us parents of a certain age have felt it, right? Um, when our children, uh, uh, you know, um, are growing up, right? When they uh, show these signs, as you say, of advancing age and maturity and development and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, okay. Good, that's me not talking about that for long. Excellent. Um, uh, what did I do? Psyche has just asked. Like, she's asking what she did wrong. Like, why are the people mad at her now? Right? Do, said I, you healed them and blessed them and took their filthy disease upon yourself. And these are their thanks. Oh, I could tear them in pieces. Get up, child. Let me go. Even now, we are king's daughters still. I'll go to the king. He may beat me and drag me by the hair as he pleases, but this he shall hear. Bread for them indeed. I'll, I'll... Hush, sister, hush, said Psyche. I can't bear it when he hurts you. And I'm so tired. And I want my supper. There, don't be angry. You look just like our father when you say those things. Let us have supper here, you and I. There is some bad thing coming towards us. I have felt it a long time, but I don't think it will come tonight. I'll clap my hands to call your maids. Though the words, you look just like our father, from and from her, had hurt me with a wound that sometimes aches still, I let go my anger and yielded. All right. Um... First, the first thing we have to notice, because this is not something that Orwell, there are things about herself that Orwell discusses a lot. There are other things about herself that we can see plenty of evidence of, but that Orwell herself does not talk about much. For whatever reason, maybe it's because she's ashamed of it. Maybe it's because she's 
not really very self-aware on that subject, right? But one of these things is her ferocity. She does, in fact, share the temper and ferocity of her father. And we see her flying into a passion and a rage on many occasions. Um, and this is a really interesting one. Um, her response to hearing about what the people did is fury. She's going to go to the king. Um, she wants vengeance against the people. There's another passage that I thought of talking about here, too, but this one will serve for both, um, where she threatens to mutilate the people who dared to throw rocks at her. Um, uh, yeah, so... Um, uh, yeah, so... Um, She she often responds to things with passion. Passion of, like, multiple kinds. She's not always angry. She's not always violent. You know, but the king's violent rages, Orwell, like, the, 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 the apple, that apple doesn't fall very far from the tree, right? And Psyche here draws attention to it. You look just like our father. Um... The remember, Orowal is very, very ugly. Almost all the time, at least so far, almost all the time, any reference to or recollection of Orowal's ugliness, I feel is designed to elicit our pity, right? We feel bad for her. Um, she gains our sympathy when we see her being dismissed, belittled, even dehumanized as an ugly girl, as an ugly woman who's good for almost nothing because she's ugly, right? Um, no, Emily, all of the evidence that we have is that she's ugly. It's not just her father. Um... I think it's an interesting element, Emily, and it's worth it's worth remembering. It's worth thinking about um, as we continue forward. Um, but I don't think we have any evidence. I think there is no positive evidence that the stories of her ugliness are untrue. It's true that not everybody talks about it. Like, you would never know she was ugly from anything the fox says, for instance, because the fox is kind and loves her. Um, but, um, but we get no... There's a bunch of indirect evidence, um, though it's filtered through Orwell's perception, so you don't 100% know for sure. Um, but... Um, uh, in any case, I, um, I don't know what their values are. That is, no, and again, this is an, it's just, it's a brilliant thing that Lewis does. Apart from being told that her hair is lank and dull, we're not told anything else about her. We're told her face is ugly. Um, you know, her father says things like her face would curdle milk and calls her goblin daughter. Um, her face, 
by the king's testimony, because the t- king is the only one who has both the position and the rudeness to say anything about it. Um, uh, but yes, Mary, that's exactly it. There is no contrary evidence. I can't think of any contrary evidence from one end of this book to the next. Um, and I don't see much real reason to doubt the basic fact that Orwell is ugly. Um, it, it is worth thinking about. Um, but that she is physically unattractive. And again, what that means, who knows? Who knows? Does it mean she's dark? Does it mean she's pale? Does it mean, she, you know, what does it mean? Does, is there more round, more skinny? Who knows what exactly the definitions of human beauty are, like female beauty are in her culture. We're not told that exactly. We can get it a little bit. Um, apparently, Redival's golden hair is attractive, we're told. Um, but anyway, we have um, we have we have no um, uh, we have no clear idea of what she looks like um, exactly. But that she is ugly seems to be one of the basic facts that we are asked to accept, and which Orwell herself never challenges. Um, when she says things like, "That was the first time I understood clearly that I was ugly." Um, Yes, it's the king who said the thing that led her to think that. Um, but n- she is not going to be undeceived about that point ever by anybody. Um, not even anything the fox says counteracts that. Or the fox, we, we would never know from anything the fox says that she is ugly. But the fox has also said nothing to disabuse her of that idea, right? Um, so, again, I... I, I Believe that we are meant to accept that as one of the um, sort of fixed points um, of the uh, of the story, and this is particularly important because of the contrast with Psyche. Um, if uh, Orwell is wholly unattractive physically, um, especially as a woman. Again, whatever that means within this culture. Um, Psyche is, of course, by Orwell's own own description, has a beauty concerning which there can be no two opinions in anybody who sees her, right? Um, But in any case, when I I bring... The reason I brought that up just now is that there is an ugliness in Orwell's character, too, which comes out. Not always. I'm not saying she's a horrible, ugly person. I'm just saying there is ugliness there. Um, this impulse. I'm going, to, I'm going to wreak vengeance upon them. I am going to... Somebody did wrong to the person that I love. I'm going to make them hurt. Right? That's Orwell's impulse. And we see it on more than one occasion. She, and, and she does. When she is acting like that, she does look just like her father. That's her father's impulse, too. Um, Her father's impulse is to lash out when thwarted, right? Uh, To consider his own goods above everybody else's. Orwell is not like that. But Psyche has pointed out to us that there are times when... um, There are times when Orwell looks just like her father. And I think we would do well to just file that away and remember that. That's all I'm saying. 
Um, yeah, Maureen, that's a really insightful comment. Maureen says, um, we want this to be an ugly duckling story. Yes. Yes. I can see that impulse. Um, and I think you're right that that is, that is a very natural impulse, right? Um, Orwell's been called ugly and we want to believe she's not actually, she's not ugly. She just misunderstood. Right. Um, I don't, I, I don't think so. I think we are supposed to accept the fact she is genuinely repulsive to look at. Um, uh, yes. Um, okay. Um, notice another thing. Following up on the previous slide, look how Psyche handles um, look how Psyche handles Orwell in that paragraph. Hush, sister, hush, she says. Tries to stop, stop her in her tracks. To, to stop Orwell's headlong rush towards violence, which is what she wants, violence against those who spoke against and acted against Psyche. Hush, sister, hush. Now, what does she say? I can't bear it when he hurts you. Right? She, Orwell, was just saying, I don't care. He may beat me and drag me by the hair as he pleases, but this he shall hear. Right? I know I'm going to risk the king being angry at me if I tell him this, but I don't care. And so Psyche turns that, right, into an appeal. I can't bear it when he hurts you. For my sake, if you love me, don't, don't go and get yourself hurt by him. Right? Um... And I'm so tired. And I want my supper. Do we think that Psyche is really like, Orwell, forget what you want, feed me instead. Is this her being demanding? No. This is her being perceptive and careful and brilliant. Right? She knows Orwell. How is she going to divert Orwell? How is she going to manage Orwell's passion? She knows Orwell's passions. How is she going to manage it? She manages it by turning Orwell um, towards her... The, the one direction that Psyche knows will always work, right? Will always divert her from the headlong, passionate course she's embarked on, and that is to take care of herself. She presents herself as needing to be taken care of. I'm so tired and I want my supper. And then notice how even she turns that. Let us have supper here, you and I. Right? So not only do I want you to focus on getting dinner instead, but of course, notice she's also feeding Orwell here. Right? That might also help to, you know, just in case there's an edge of hangriness involved here, right? I mean, let's instead turn this in a positive direction. Let's make this into an evening where we enjoy each other's company and... You know, the um, let's make this into a positive moment in which we, you know, act out of our love for each other instead of acting out of hatred and violence, which is connected to our love, right? Connected to Orwell's love for Psyche. Um, let's not let it go that way. Let's turn it positively instead. But notice how she does that without rebuke, without correction without suggestion of any, you know, she doesn't even let on that she's diverting Orwell, and yet she completely 
diverts Orwell. Um, she manages Orwell brilliantly here. Um, and I'm not even sure the extent to which Orwell, aged Orwell, who's writing this, even is totally parsing that, right? Because, um, again, I think that her own likeness to the king, it is clear from Orwell's own response that the idea of her likeness to her father hurt her with a wound that sometimes aches still. Orwell does not like to think that she is like her father. Right? Orwell grew up not only fearing her father, um, but despising her father. And so any likeness to her father is one that Orwell denies and is therefore perhaps in denial about and possibly still to this day. Notice how the majority of those moments when she interrupted to interject something, a reference to her future life, right? It has mostly been to differentiate her from her father, right? To point out a stupid thing that her father did as king and how much better she has done, how she has corrected it since then, whether it be um, redoing the floor of the pillar room or, um, you know, repairing, uh, you know, dredging the shenet and repairing it. Um, you know, many, many things like that. Um, uh, she distances herself from her father all the time, and yet Psyche is clearly right. Orwell is her father's daughter. She's not exactly like her father. She is different from him in many ways. And most importantly, she has like made life decisions which have put her on a different track. Um, she, the love that she shows for the fox and for Psyche have no parallel as far as we can see, as far as we know, in the king's life. Um, uh, Orwell is her father, her father as he should have been, Calderas. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps. Um, but, um, but anyway, again, I think this is one of those places where we can see behind the description of the first person narrator because we've touched on something that she herself is in denial about. Um, and I don't know about you, but I have known several people like this. Haven't you? Um, people who, um, especially like if you've known someone who has a very fraught relationship with one of their parents, right? Um, but also take after that parent. And that can be a really sensitive subject, right? Um, because from their, based on their own experience, from how they were treated by their parent, they want to distance themselves from that, right? And yet they are like their parent in that, even if they've made many different choices. It's a, it, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a real thing. That's really, Morgul Hamster says, okay, no need to come at me like that, sir. I mean, boy, um, this is a book that'll get up in your business. It is, it is. I'll try to, I'll try not to, I'll try not to be, uh, be too pointed about these kinds of things. But, um, um, uh, anyway, yeah, yeah. Um, and yes, JJ, you're right. It doesn't have to, it, it, this kind of thing can happen in other ways other than in parent-child um, relationships. Uh, JJ is pointing out how um, uh, Galadriel was one of Theonor's biggest opponents in Tolkien's Legendarium, um, and yet was also similar to him uh, in some important ways. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And 
I don't doubt that um, second age Goadriel, especially, uh, or first age Goadriel, would probably have been very, if you had said that she kind of reminded you of Feanor, would probably have been displeased uh, by that comparison. But it's true. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yes. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Eric says, uh, Lewis writes the screw tape letters, uh, which is a masterpiece of spirituality, till we have faces as a masterpiece of psychology. It's amazing to me, Eric, how the kind of profound insight that Lewis shows about human psyche, so to speak, and human character um, in uh, in this book. It is uh, very, uh, um, very beyond. Um, so again, so far beyond his other books. And that you can see there's much wisdom in many of his other books too, but man, this book is, uh, this book hits like a ton of bricks. Um, yeah. Fanaro, that's a really interesting point. Orwell suppresses the parts of her personality that are like her father, almost dissociatively. Yeah. Uh, so when that rage bubbles up, she sees a different person. She sees a different person, a person she doesn't know. Yes. And Psyche is going to know it. Psyche will have seen it, right, her whole life. Um, whereas, again, Orwell kind of compartmentalizes it a bit, right? Yes. Um and of course, the other thing that I would point out here, which I think is super important, there's another really important reason why Orowal, if uh, the Orowal, either the Orowal from this age, like, you know, the, when this conversation was happening, or even the Orowal who's writing the book, um, if either of those Orowals were here, she might defend herself very plausibly by saying, I am nothing like my father. Yes, I am passionate as passionate as my father, but the basis is completely different. My father thought only of himself. Was only It was selfishness that motivated all of my father's passions and my father's violence. I am only thinking of others. It is my love for Psyche that led me into violent passion here. And that makes it completely different from the passion of my father and why it's so hurtful to me uh, to think that Psyche was making that connection in that moment, right? And if she said that, she would be right, and she would be wrong, right? There's still similarities, but it's important there. Um, uh, okay, let's keep going. The priest of Ungit shows up at the king's house the next morning. The bearer set down the litter, and the priest was lifted out of it. He was very old now and blind, and he had two temple girls with him to lead him. Remember, the Ungit's girls are temple prostitutes. I had seen their kind before, but only by torchlight in the house of Ungit. They looked strange under the sun, with their gilt paps and their huge flaxen wigs and their faces painted till they looked like wooden masks. Only these two and the priest, with one hand on a shoulder of each, came into the palace. Um, let's pause there. Well, no, I was not paused there. Skipping a paragraph. He was out of breath and sat for a long time before he spoke, making a chewing motion with his gums as old men do. The girls stood stiffly at each side of his chair, their meaningless eyes looking always straight ahead out of the mask of their painting. The smell of old age and the smell of the oils and essences they put on those girls and the ungut smell filled the room. It became very holy. 
Um, okay. Um, yeah, I believe what Starlight was saying about the previous passage, it hurts because it's true. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Ungit's girls, the temple prostitutes in the house of Ungit. Um, notice what we are told um, about them, this, some of the elements here. First of all, in case you are not familiar with the um, uh, the word pap isn't used very much uh, in uh, modern usages. That means their breasts. Um, so their, their breasts are apparently painted gold. And I believe this suggests that their breasts are actually bare. Um, not that they're topless, but that their breasts are revealed through their dresses and gilded, painted gold. Um, remember, they're temple prostitutes. They're temple prostitutes in the temple of a fertility goddess. Um, that's why I believe their breasts are on display and yet not on display. Um, their breasts, I believe, are bare, um, but they're paint, they're gilded to look metallic, to look non-human, um, right? Um, I, so that's one element. Um, the, that, that, the combination of exposure and concealment there, um, I think is important here in the description of Ungit's girls. Um, they have wigs, flaxen wigs. We know that flaxen, that is to say yellow hair, is beautiful. We know this from the testimony of, about Redival's when they had to cut Redival's hair as a child back in chapter one. We know that flaxen hair is beautiful. So they wear flaxen wigs, which therefore suggests that one of the one of the concepts that is being sort of ritually associated with Ungit is beauty, and yet an impersonal kind of beauty. Um, so they they have blonde wigs and they have bare breasts, but the breasts are but the the, the wigs are just wigs, um, and the again the breasts are gilded so they look like they're made of metal, right? Rather than looking like flesh. Um, exactly. Eric, it is like the, their, their breasts themselves are like masks. It is, they are not being made objects of desire themselves, right? Um, like they, they are, they are bare breasted, but not as a stripper might be, right? This is not designed to elicit, um, you know, a salacious response on the part of male onlookers. It's off-putting, if anything. It makes them look inhuman, while at the same time drawing attention to their breasts, which are associated with the idea of motherhood and fertility, right? Which is associated with Ungit, right? Because they are, they are Ungit's girls. Um, and their faces are painted till they looked like wooden masks. It's their actual faces. It's their actual faces, um, but they're, they have so much paint lathered on their faces that their real faces are made to look like masks. Um, we should remember this, as there will be many different um, data points in the face and masking, like the face and facelessness motif that will go throughout the book. Um, Ungit's girls are a very interesting data point in that whole constellation. 
there. Um, and yes, Mary, that's a really good point. They're not really meant to be seen by the light of day. Again, these are not... Um, and again, actually... Um, contrasting them with strippers. Why am I contrasting them with strippers? Well, because they are objects of sexual desire in one sense. That is, they're temple prostitutes. Like, men of Gloam go to the house of Ungit and have sex with these girls there. Um, that's what actually happens in the house of Ungit, we're told. So, they are, in one sense, an object of sexual desire. But at the same time, they are they're not being made an object. So they are, um, they are eroticized in one sense, but not in another sense, right? Made distant from. Um, where, like a stripper on a stage is under spotlights, right? Meant to draw the male gaze to her own body in desire. Um, the temple prostitutes are not in, they're, they're not individualized. In that. They're, they're not supposed to be the focus. Ungit's the focus, right? They are, they're more, they're more like exactly as you were suggesting, as somebody was suggesting, um, living statues. Yes, they're almost like idols. JJ, that's exactly right. The gilded breasts themselves, they are like a graven idol of a fertility figure, except they're alive. Um, that does seem to be a similar kind of role. Um, they are like, and what is an idol? An idol is a physical representation, manifestation of the god. Ungit's girls, therefore, are physical representations of Ungit that you actually have sex with, right? So again, the, like the whole fertility thing, right? And yet Ungit's girls themselves are not fertile. Ungit's girls don't bear children. We'll, we'll be told that later. A little bit of a spoiler, but um, we'll, we'll, we'll be told that later. Um, uh, yeah, but Mary, again, coming back to your point, you're right that they're not meant to be seen by the light of day. Um, they're not the focus. It's not about them. It's not about them. Um, yes, so Eric, you're exactly right. The men aren't really having sex with them, but with Ungit. Yes, yes. It's part of the fertility ritual of the worship of Ungit. Um, it has nothing to do with the girls themselves. They are impersonal. Um, in a wig designed to evoke the concept of, a, of female beauty. Um, with gilded breasts designed to evoke the concept of female fertility and maternity and motherhood. Right? Um, and even sexual, desi sexual desirability, potentially. And their faces painted till they looked like wooden masks so that they are not individuals, so that you don't even know who that girl is or was, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, yeah, stand in for the God. Exactly, Emily. That's exactly, that's exactly it. Um, uh Yes, uh, their faces seeming wooden suggests some rigidity in the appearance, um, as um, their actions also suggest rigidity. Look at their eyes, right? The girl stood stiffly at either side of his chair, their meaningless eyes looking always straight ahead out of the mask of their painting. They don't act like people. 
They're not, they don't show any interest in the world around them. They're like living statues made of wood or gold or gilded wood, right? Um, and paint. Of course, most idols would have been painted. Not the black ungit rock, right? Which is the god, ungit, the goddess. Um, but um, most sta- I mean, statues in the ancient world would, would have been painted. The, you know, of course, the famous white statues, marble statues, you know, Greek statues that we see were all painted um, back in the day. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, now the priest. He was very old now and blind. He was out of breath and sat for a long time before he spoke, making a chewing motion with his gums as old men do. Orwal is very conscious of him as a very aged man. Um, so there are some things about him that are very human in this way, right? Um, th- it's important to note this as we begin. When she first sees the priest, she's seen him before, but when she first sees him in this scene, right, the first impressions that we get are of his, his vulnerability. He's old and weak and blind and, you know, gets out of breath really easily. Um, uh, that phrase, as old men do, right, he's like typical of the class of very aged men. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Kel Elros, yes, I agree. Um, that's worth noting. If we're tracking faces through the book, these girls would seem to be uh, in a category of having had a face when they were young and having then lost it over the ensuing events of their lives. Yes. The one reference we've gotten to Ungit's girls before they're in the house of Ungit was in the reference in chapter three, I think it was, um, to the, to the fact that like they're, um, there are kids all over the palace, like the slaves are always having sex with each other and having children, and the king is has bastards all over the place. And um, so um, the and many of the girls are sent to the house of Ungit uh, when they uh, when they reach puberty, basically. Um, so we know that some of the of Ungit's girls are like slave girls or even the king's own bastard daughters um, who were given to the House of Ungit when they, uh, when they grew up. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, oh man, Ambrosius, I agree. It is, this is another example of one of those things I was talking about, about how complex this book is, right? This description, it's heartbreaking, isn't it? I mean, the, it's, it's very hard not to have compassion for Ungit's girls here, for these these girls in the lives that they're living, right, as temple prostitutes and what has happened to them. Um, it's so horrible and so sad. And yet, notice what Lewis does. He tells us enough to elicit our sympathy, right? But he doesn't insist on it. He doesn't undermine Orowal's perspective. And Orowal takes this as a matter of course. This is just this is what they are, right? I mean, this is... Temple prostitutes, Ungit's girls. It's a thing, right? I mean, it's she doesn't she doesn't look at them with compassion. They're a fact of life to her. Um, we will see some other reactions that she has to the people in the temple of Ungit later on, um, but um, but again, we don't get any direct prompting. Remember what I said about not having a 
at using the phrase, and I'm sorry, I forget who said this earlier, we're not given a, uh, a compass. Emily, I think it was you. Um, we're not given a compass. Like, we don't get a character who, like, you know, from whom we can, like, safely take our cues as to how to feel, right? Um, if we're horrified thinking about these two women, Orwell's not. She's horrified. If she's horrified, she's horrified for a, a totally different reason. And Maureen, yeah, that, that impulse to... um. Um, that impulse to want to rescue them, there's no evidence of that impulse in Orwell or anyone else, right? It's an impulse wholly alien to the story, to the world of the story, even. Um, the only person in the entire book that I can imagine, even, having that reaction to Ungit's girls is the fox, because he's not from this culture, and he would look at this as barbaric. Um, Probably. Um, but, um, anyway, uh, but again, C.S. Lewis never, he doesn't waver, right? He's adopted this frame, the point of view of Orwell within the culture of Gloam, and he doesn't waver from it. Um, even when it is really uncomfortable, this is uncomfortable in so many ways, right? Um, but he lets us be uncomfortable there. And he's just getting warmed up. Um, holiness. We've talked about holiness a little bit. The rather peculiar definition. I don't think I've ever seen anywhere, anyone, use the word holy in exactly the way that Orwell uses the word holy. Um, it does point to a very... Hebrew Bible kind of sense of separateness, of otherness, right? Um, to be holy is to be set apart, is to be distant from the human world and human experience and human understanding, even. Um, it's, it, 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 those are some of the things that seem to me clearly to be tied up in the idea of the holy, um, as it's depicted in, um, in, in the Bible, especially in the Hebrew Scriptures. But, um, uh, but that element is here to some extent, other, strange, not related to the normal human world, but it is overlaid in Orwell's experience with horror. The unget smell, you'll remember, is the smell of rancid wine and old blood. Um, the House of Ungit is a dark, unsanitary, smelly place. Um, yeah. Um, so when she says that the room becomes very holy, there is this sense of an invasion, right? Um, the priest has entered the room accompanied by Ungit's girls. They're strange girls, and he is a weak, thin, blind old man. Um, and yet, the palace has been invaded by holiness, by something divine, something spiritual as well. He's delivering his message to the king. The priest is. 
And being gathered together, said the priest, we reckoned up all the woes that have come upon us. First, the famine, which still increases. Second, the pestilence. Third, the drought. Fourth, the certain expectation of war by next spring at the latest. Fifth, the lions. And lastly, king, your own barrenness of sons, which is hateful to Ungit. That's enough, shouted the king. You old fool, do you think I need you or any of the other wiseacres to tell me where my own belly aches? Hateful to Ungit, is it? Why does Ungit not mend it then? She's had bulls and rams and goats from me in plenty, blood enough to sail a ship on if all were reckoned. The priest cites all of the woes that have come upon them. And he is in no doubts as to why these things have all happened. There is a clear cause. When there are this many, six different woes that have come upon Gloam, this can only mean the disapproval of the gods. Um, and remember, Orwell grants that... Um, Orwell grants that the um, that the gods do this kind of thing. Remember, in her very like in that in that opening par the, the, those opening paragraphs, um, how she was saying that like plagues and uh, and, uh, and 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 those kinds of things don't count as an answer, right? Um, uh, she knows that they send those things, right? So. The priest says, all of these things have come. Um, all of these things have come and uh, proving without a doubt that Ungit is angry at us. Um, the barrenness of the king is, in, you know, his barrenness of sons, the fact that the king has not born a son and there's no clear heir to the throne, um, has is another one of those things. Remember those, uh, when I was talking about ambivalent data points, right? How do you take that? Is it a sign of the anger of Ungit against the king? Or is it a sign of the, the failure of Ungit, right? The priest clearly lists it among the former. It is, it is the plainest of all signs. It is the last one that he cites because he puts it in the chief place, right? Um, your barrenness of sons, which is hateful to Ungit. And the king responds by saying, no, no, wait, man, it's the other way around, right? Um, why does Ungit not mend it then? It's Ungit's fault that I don't have sons. I've made, right, whole herds worth of sacrifices to Ungit um, in asking for a son. Her job was to give me a son. She's failed, right? That's on Ungit, not on me. The priest says, oh, absolutely not. Right. There is no question of whether or not Ungit can give sons. It is, will she, or is the person worthy of sons, right? It's the king's fault, clearly. Um, or at least, it's the fault of something, right? There is some cause that is leading to the, um, all of these horrible things happening. Um, bulls and rams and goats will not win Ungit's favor while the land is impure, said the priest. I have served Ungit these fifty, no, sixty-three years, and I have learned one thing for certain. 
Her anger never comes upon us without cause, and it never ceases without expiation. I have made offerings to her for your father and your father's father, and it has always been the same. We were overthrown long before your day by the king of Assur, and that was because there was a man in your grandfather's army who had lain with his sister and killed the child. He was the accursed. We found him out and expiated his sin, and then the men of Glom chased the men of Assur like sheep. Your father himself could have told you how one woman, little more than a child, cursed Ungit's son, the god of the mountain, in secret. For her sake the floods came. She was the accursed. We found her out and expiated her sin, and Shenet returned into her banks. And now, by all the signs I have reckoned over to you, we know that Ungit's anger is far greater than ever within my memory. Thus we all said in her house last night, we all said, we must find the accursed. Um, uh, those of you who know the Bible well will see the parallel um, to and with what he says about the king of Assur. Uh, you may remember the passage from the book of Joshua um, when the after the um, the downfall of Jericho in one of the first battles thereafter, um, when the Israelites go to war against the people of Ai, which is a small and insignificant town, um, but they are routed by the people of Ai because there is a person who has done the accursed thing, who has defied uh, what they were told to do. He took spoil when he was not supposed to take spoil. He took it and hid it. And they cast lots to find who was the one who did this, who was the one who brought the anger. Um, and he and his family are killed. And the sin is expiated. And after that, um, the Israelites chase the men of Ai like sheep. Um, there's a very, very close parallel that he's building on there. Um um, yes, Achan, or Achan, or however, I don't know exactly how you'd pronounce it in Hebrew. Um, uh, yes, yes. Um, so, the priest says they have to find the accursed. When this sort of thing happens, when these kinds of grave consequences fall upon the land, it is a sign that the accursed has come. Um, and... Fanaro, I completely agree with you. The accursed little girl story is particularly disturbing. Can't help but think that she was a scapegoat since she was so young and her alleged curse was in secret. Yeah, exactly, right? Um, sounds like a witch hunt, doesn't it? Again, from our distance, we look at this and we say, you know, man, yeah. Um, um, this sounds really bad. In a lot of ways, right? Um, but Lewis isn't going to throw any bones here, right? He's not going to. There is nobody within the story to validate our reaction to that, right? Does it sound like scapegoating? Yep. Yes, it does. Um, scapegoat, of course, also something from the from the Old Testament, something from the Hebrew Bible, right? Um, except it's an actual goat, right, um, upon whom... Um, there's a difference, though. I want to be a little bit careful because of the ways that there are some direct um, connections being made here uh, to 
the Old Testament to the Hebrew Bible, I want to be a little cautious because in using the word scapegoat because um, that's not what the scapegoat is. Um, so in the Old Testament, the scapegoat is a goat. There's a there's a there's a a, 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 a ritual that's supposed to happen um, on Yom Kippur, I think, uh, the Day of Atonement, right? If I'm remembering correctly, um, the idea is that the priest lays his hand upon this goat. And the sins of the people, the unconfessed, the the unknown sins of the people, anything that might have, you know, earned God's wrath that they don't know about, is placed upon the goat, right? So the goat is sort of like symbolically infused with the sin of the people, and it is then released into the wilderness. Um, it, you know, it's it's cast out, driven out from the people. Um, that's not the same. So, like, the use of the word scapegoat in its modern colloquial sense is appropriate here. But that's not actually... I want, so I want to be cautious because that's not actually what the scapegoat of the Old Testament is like. And again, since we're, we're kind of in that territory here, I want to, I'm, I'm wanting to be a little bit um, cautious. Yes, it's become a more generalized metaphor where you blame one person for somebody else's, you know, wrongs essentially, or when one person basically takes the fall for somebody else. They've been made a scapegoat, right? Um, that's the much more generic way in which it's used now. But it's important because the accursed is different, right? The, they are not taking somebody and putting the sins of the community on that person. It's quite different, right? They're discovering the whole community is being punished for something done by somebody, that's the pattern that he's pointing to, right? Um, the dude who laid with his sister and killed the child, or the girl um, who cursed Ungit's son in secret, and I totally agree with you about how dodgy that sounds. Um, but yes, Leaf of Starlight, exactly. The priest of Ungit is asking us to believe that they are the source of the problem. Exactly. And so if they are found and killed, if they are found and sacrificed then there's the sin the sin of the people will be expiated will be will be removed right um yes yes okay um and are we supposed to there are a couple ways in which the example of what happened during the king's father's time should make us uncomfortable right um number 1 uh, one woman little more than a child um, cursed him in secret. So there's like not even any evidence that it, that it actually happened, right? Um, so a, a child, or certainly somebody we would consider a child, um, cursed the god of the mountain privately without even telling anybody else about it. Um, and so that's what caused the um, um, floods, right? Floods came because of that? Really? Um, okay, so that's uncomfortable. But also notice um, it should make us uncomfortable in another way, too. Right? Um, uh, the god of the mountain, isn't that the one that Orwell hates? And who says hates her? I mean, she didn't exactly curse him on page one. 
But, you know, she wants to arraign him, <laughs> right? Which I'm guessing the priest of Unget would not be thrilled by this, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's another reason I think we're meant to be uncomfortable within the terms of the book itself here. Now, hang on a second. There's a third thing. There's a third thing. Yeah, or Orwell might consider herself the accursed. Maybe. Third thing. Third reason for being uncomfortable. Um, hang on. I forgot about the third thing. I got distracted in my head thinking about one of the next things I want to talk about. Hang on. Let me see if I can remember. There is no third thing. Fifth the lions, Leaf of Starlight. That's exactly it. Fifth the lions. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I remember. I remember. Here's the other reason to be uncomfortable. Remember what we just saw with the people and the touching, the healing, right? Um, there is uncertainty as to whether or not Psyche has the power to heal people of the plague by laying hands on them, right? Um, she feels that she does. Many people feel that she does. Many other people then come to feel that she does not, and in fact is causing the death instead, right? But as we said, the data are ambivalent. You can support, it, it, it can easily be taken either way. It's, in the end, it seems to be kind of about what you want to believe, which suggests, which would lead us, especially from a generally more skeptical modern perspective, especially resistant to this culture. I don't think any of us are reading this and feeling like at home in Gloom, right? Uh, you know, feeling our hearts beat in sympathy with the worldview and um, religious beliefs of Gloom, right? Um, it's one of the things that's so fascinating about this story is that he does not... Um, he takes this entire story and places it within a culture which is alien to everybody who's reading it and repugnant to many, most even, perhaps all who read it, right? Um, anyway, so, so, oh, we'll come back to that, Sphinx. Hang on, hang on. Don't jump ahead. Um, anyway, okay, so our tendency is to look back at this and say, Right, so we know what's really happening. We know the truth of the matter. The truth of the matter is that Psyche laying her hands on people didn't do a darn thing. That there was a superstitious belief that it healed them on the one hand, and a superstitious belief that it hurt them on the other hand, but they're both equally arbitrary interpretations of the... But we know what's real, right? And what's real is that it, it didn't actually do anything, right? Um... Be careful, because you have no justification for that. Do you know? Why do you know? How do you know that Psyche laying her hands on didn't do one thing or the other? What evidence do we have of that? Psyche believes that she felt that she did heal people when she put her hands on them. The fox, even, doesn't rule out the possibility that it could be according to nature for one person to be able to heal 
in this way. Don't forget to question your own assumptions as you read this. And don't be... We need to be humble enough to let the story take us where it takes us. Here's how this is about to be relevant again. I call this the third uncomfortable thing. Because we read this and we think we can see what's going on here. You guys were talking about scapegoating, right? Well, that's the modern point of view, right? You're assuming, if you say that, you're assuming that the priest is wrong. Just as you might have been assuming that Psyche laying hands on people wouldn't actually heal them, right? Do you know that? Are you sure? It's uncomfortable. It certainly sounds like a witch hunt or like scapegoating in the modern sense, right? Um, are you sure? How do you know? How do you know? Um, yeah, we have no evidence that the God of the Mountain isn't real. Hang on to this. We're going to we're going to come. We're going to we're going to continue with this line here as we move forward. The king says, oh, so she needs a human sacrifice. And so he offers to to give them a thief. The next thief he catches, like basically like instead of just hanging him, I'll let you slit his throat over the statue of Unget. Right. That is not enough, king, and you know it. We must find the accursed. And she, or he, must die by the right of the great offering. What is a thief more than a bull or a ram? This is not to be a common sacrifice. We must make the great offering. The brute has been seen again. And when it comes, the great offering must be made. That is how the accursed must be offered. The brute? It's the first I've heard of it. First we've heard of it too, as readers. It may be so. Kings seem to hear very little. They do not know even what goes on in their own palaces. But I hear. I lie awake in the nights, very long awake, and Ungit tells me things. I hear of terrible doings in this land, mortals aping the gods and stealing the worship due to the gods. I looked at the fox and said, soundlessly, by the shaping of my lips, Redival. Remember, Redival had become very pious and had been spending a lot of time worshipping at the house of Ungit. Now, notice how Orawal, and she assumes the fox also. Um, she doesn't believe what the priest says here. The priest claims to have been told things by Ungit as he lies awake in the night. And that he knows more than the king about what's going on because the king's not paying attention and he is being told things by Ungit. Right? He has... Um, Ungit has told him of mortals aping the god and stealing the worship due to the gods. Um, Orowal immediately blames her sister, Redival. She believes that Redival's envy of Psyche, her grudging of Psyche's beauty, her resentment against, you know, being looked after all the time, right? Being chaperoned all the time by Orwal and the fox um, have led her to um, run to the priest of Ungat, as she threatened to do, remember? 
Remember, she said that how she noted how interesting the priest of Ungit might find the story of Psyche being worshipped. Um, that's a very plausible theory, right? So she's oper she operates she's her first reaction is to think the priest is the priest is lying. The priest is posturing. It's not true. It's not true. He has been told this by Radival. Right? She blames Radival immediately. Um footnote. Are we sure it's Radival? There are lots of ways the king could have heard about this. I mean, she was being called the Ungit in human shape in the public square in front of hundreds of people, right? Um, but Orwell immediately knows um, that uh, 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 that um, she she immediately knows that it's Redival, right? What has really what has really happened here? Um, yeah. Okay. Um, now, back to the brute for a second. The brute is a monster or a spirit. It is the god of the mountain, the son of Ungut, but it isn't at the same time. It's a shadow and a beast. It devours things. Um, the great offering. How is the sin to be expiated? How is the accursed to be killed? It doesn't have its throat slit over the uh, the, the ungut stone. Um, that's um, uh, that's not um, exactly what's going on here, right? Um, it gets fed to the brute. That is how the accursed must be offered. Um, that is the great offering. Um, okay, let's keep going. There's more of this stuff that we'll see. How was it made? said the king. It has never happened in my time, the great offering. It is not done in the house of Ungit, said the priest. The victim must be given to the brute. For the brute is, in a mystery, Ungit herself, or Ungit's son, the god of the mountain, or both. The victim is led up the mountain to the holy tree, and bound to the tree, and left. Then the brute comes. That is why you angered Ungit just now, king, when you spoke of offering a thief. In the great offering, the victim must be perfect. For in holy language, a man so offered is said to be Ungit's husband, and a woman is said to be the bride of Ungit's son. And both are called the brute's supper. And when the brute is ungit, it lies with the man. And when it is her son, it lies with the woman. And either way, there is a devouring. Many different things are said, many sacred stories, many great mysteries. Some say that loving and the devouring are all the same thing. For in sacred language, we say that a woman who lies with a man devours the man. That is why you are so wide of the mark, king, when you think of a thief or an old worn-out slave or a coward taken in battle would do for the great offering. The best in the land is not too good for this office. 
Okay. Um, now, I don't know about you, but the priest doesn't exactly have me here, right? Like, I'm not exactly rolling with the priest of Ungut in this speech. Um, and if it sounds really confusing, and if the if you're reading this and thinking that the priest of Ungut is losing credibility in your mind, the more you hear, let's keep going. The fox immediately comes to our rescue, right? Um, the fox raises the fox is going to speak up against this superstitious mumbo jumbo, right? Do you not see, Master? Said the fox, that the priest is is talking nonsense. A shadow is to be an animal, which is also a goddess, which is also a god, and loving is to be eating? A child of six would talk more sense. And a moment ago, the victim of this abominable sacrifice was to be the accursed, the wickedest person in the whole land, offered as a punishment. And now it is to be the best person in the whole land, the perfect victim, married to the god as a reward. Ask him which he means. It can't be both. That's... Oh, man, what a breath of fresh air the fox is here, right? Finally. Right, there we go. So um, against the priest of Bungit, we get somebody thinking clearly. And this is one of the first places in the book where, at least in my experience, where, like, if you wanted that kind of a compass, right, that kind of, like, somebody speaking something that we can hold on to, something that we can get behind, right? It sounds like the fox in this moment, right? Um, Notice Orowal's response. If any hope had put up its head within me when the fox began, it was killed. This sort of talk could do no good. And she blames him. She's like, "He's, he's already lost. This... Orwell's response is the opposite of my response, of I think many of our responses, right? Instead of responding to this paragraph by feeling like, yeah, you tell him, Fox, keep going. Orwell's like, well, shoot. Now we've lost the argument completely. We'll keep going. I'm not, we're not skipping these passages, but I want to think of all of these kind of together. <clears throat> We are hearing much Greek wisdom this morning, king, said the priest, and I have heard most of it before. I did not need a slave to teach it to me. It is very subtle, but it brings no rain and grows no corn. Sacrifice does both. It does not even give them boldness to die. That Greek there is your slave, because in some battle he threw down his arms and let them bind his hands and lead him away and sell him, rather than take a spear thrust in his heart. Much less does it give them understanding of holy things. They demand to see such things clearly, as if the gods were no more than letters written in a book. I, king, have dealt with the gods for three generations of men, and I know that they dazzle our eyes and flow in and out of one another like eddies on a river, and nothing that is said clearly can be said truly about them. Holy places are dark places. It is life and strength, not knowledge and words, that we get in them. Holy wisdom is not clear and thin like water, but thick and dark like blood. Why should the accursed not be both the best and the worst? This is an incredible speech. Um, 
Okay, first, a piece of terminology, uh, a, a, a fun connection, which is both interesting, but also not as helpful as you might think. Um, so, um, uh, so, C.S. Lewis, in one of his essays, I don't remember where it was. I can't remember which essay it was in. Um, said in a slightly, not flippant, that's not the right word, but in a, a slightly jocular tone, as he often used when talking even about serious things, as some people criticized him for in his lifetime, um, that religions of the world could be divided uh, into the same categories as you, as you divide soup into. Uh, that is clear soups and thick soups. Um, some religions are clear, he said. That is, the primary basis of them is rational. They're about clarity of mind and clarity of thought and clarity of systems interacting with each other. Some religions are thick religions, um, where there is um, less focus on again, clarity of thought and precepts and principles and things, and more on practice, more on substance. Things like blood sacrifices and temple prostitution are two things that he cited as examples um, in, in those cases. Um, he used, actually, both like Greek philosophical religion like Platonism on the one hand as an example of a clear religion and um, again like uh, African religions where he points to I think um, again places where they're doing sacrifices and um, or again other Middle Eastern religions where there was temple prostitution and stuff um, so um, those are two categories that he draw and he is again if you know the essay he is explicitly um thinking in the same terminology, that he even uses the words clear and thick, right, uh, to sort of describe wisdom here uh, from these two different points of view. So I said on the one hand it establishes Christian apologetics is the essay. Thank you, Curious Chance. Um, as I said last time, the complete uh, essay collection of C.S. like the complete nonfiction, like, collected essays of, uh, of uh, C.S. Lewis has been both a blessing in my life and also a curse because I can't now keep track of even the titles of them, much less which one was published when and where, but um, in any case. Okay. Um, so what he describes there, um, uh, those, those terms are sort of helpful categories, right? Um, but I said it's also potentially misleading. It's misleading in the sense that what he was doing in that essay, just kind of classifying, like thinking about like two different ways to approach religion, clear and thick. And of course, what he's going on to say in the essay is that actually like both of them have an element of truth. Um, if you're, uh, if you're a hundred percent clear or a hundred percent thick, uh, in your sort of approach, you're missing out. Um, and of course what he is going on to talk about is how Christianity does both. But, um, uh, in any case, um, what we get here. So he's using those terms, but again, he's certainly not just categorizing. Um, here we have the priest who is explicitly the spoke, I mean, very clearly the spokesperson of a thick religion and the fox whose religion is perfectly clear um, to the point where the fox, there's not really any substance to his religion at all. It's just a way of thinking. It's just a way it doesn't. Um, and the criticism 
that the priest get the, that stings the fox, right? It does not even give them the boldness to die. There's no substance to it. When it comes to what does it do for you? Nothing. Right? It's very subtle. This kind of rational insistence that the fox has. Um, it's very subtle, but it brings no rain and grows no corn. Sacrifice does both. Um, uh, hang on. I see you guys talking about freedom and slavery. I would resist that if we could. Here's why. Slavery is relevant. Slavery comes up in this passage. But I see you guys talking about slavery in terms of like thinking of slavery and freedom as like um, ways of thinking about or terms to apply to the relationship to the gods. Um, I don't see those terms being used about the religions in this book at all. Um, I don't recall anybody connecting this idea of, I mean, it might come up still, but those aren't the terms here. The only way slavery is relevant here is the fact that the, the fox is a slave. Um, and the priest's point is that his clear religion, his very subtle, rational religion, didn't stop him being made a slave. What good did it do for him? Right? Nothing. There's no substance to it. In the end, it's anemic, right? Um, so I would, I would, I would, I would just. I'm not saying that what you're saying is wrong. I'm not saying that that isn't a way to think about it. But always the first thing to do, um, it, and this I think is very important. Whatever book that we're reading, it's always really important to try to think using the vocabulary of the text itself as um, as uh, uh, as as much as you can. Um, and yeah, yeah. So, um, yes, curious chance. Exactly. So, um, how are people and the gods related to each other? According, like, what is the vocabulary we're getting from that in the priest's speech here? People as food, the gods eating them and devouring them. Yes, yes, and um, as marriage partners, as sexual partners. Right. That's the other thing that is. And that's tied up with um, with both. Right. Um, JJ, you're right. The fox's religion is so clear as to be unsatisfying, while the priest's religion is so thick as to cause choking. Yes. If you had no religion but the foxes, you might starve to death because there's it's like water. There's no substance in it. Right. But the priest's religion is so thick you might asphyxiate. Right. Think of the House of Ungat. Um, how dark and stale and oppressive it is. Absolutely. Um, this is where that complexity that I was talking about comes in, though. This speech, I saw several of you reacting to the speech in this way. Um, the priest sounds like a fraud earlier. Right. If not a fraud, a manipulator. Right. And... Um, but he doesn't sound so here. It's very tempting to think, or perhaps to assume, that we're supposed to be looking down our noses at the priest of Ungit. Um, this 
repulsive, barbaric superstition of blood sacrifices and horrible things, right? But I, I think that that is not the right response. That's certainly not the cues we're getting, right? The priest looked more and more like a gaunt bird as he was speaking, says Orwell. Not unlike the bird mask that lay on his knees. Remember that bird mask that normally sits on his chest and looks like the bird is coming out of his chest? And his voice, though not loud, was no longer shaking like an old man's. The fox sat hunched together with his eyes fixed on the table. The taunt about being taken in war, I guessed, had been hot iron to some ulcer in his soul. Certainly I would that moment have hanged the priest and made the fox a king if power had been given me. But it was easy to see on which side the strength lay. Orwell loves the fox. She's totally on his side. But hearing the two of them speak, she's not responding by saying, the fox is right and the priest is wrong. She hears them and she's, the, the priest has the strong position. It's not just political strength. It's the strength of his position. Um, she knows the priest is right and the fox is wrong. Remember, this is always happening with Orwell, right? She's always seeing the fox will say things and she's like, I love the fox and I respect the fox, but he's not right. You know, the fox can say all he likes, that it is not in the divine nature to be envious. But Orwell knows you can't talk that way about Ungit. It is very dangerous um, to say that Psyche is as beautiful as Oral, as, as Ungit, as beautiful as Aphrodite, right? Um, well, well, said the king, quickening his stride. This may all be very true. I'm neither priest nor Greekling. I... They used to tell me I was the king. What's next? The king at this moment puts himself as a third position in between the two. I am neither priest nor Greekling. Neither priest nor Greekling I. Right? Orowal is also neither priest nor Greekling. She is not a servant of the priest of Ungat by any means. Not only does she not follow and obey the priest of Ungat... She loathes Ungit and the worship of Ungit. She's highly resistant to it. But she's not on the fox's side. She's not a Greekling either. She has learned the wisdom of the Greeks. She's been trained in the fox's philosophy and learned his stories. Um, she also is neither priest nor Greekling. Standing in the middle, able to judge between the two of them. Remember judgment. That's what this whole story has been about. right? Can I find an impartial judge, to judge between me and the gods. That's what Orwell wants. Right? That's who this book was written for. Remember that we were implicitly, as readers, being put into that very position. The one who can judge between her and the gods. Which means we have been asked explicitly in one sense, implicitly in others, by Orwell from the very first page to hold ourselves impartial. To judge between her and the gods. The priest of Ungit is not going to have two opinions about the charges that she's going to lay at the feet of the god of the mountain and of Ungit. The priest would know just what to say about those things, right? Just ask the little girl who got sacrificed in the previous generation what the priest of Ungit would say about that, right? Um, we are not followers of Ungit. That means that we are in a position to judge. 
but we have to be true to that position, right? We have been asked by this text from page one to hold ourselves impartial, to be neither priest nor Greekling, um, to be in this way in a similar position to Orwell and the king, though one step even further beyond, right? To judge between Orwell and the gods themselves. Um, and I think that this text, I guess what I, again, it's one of the things I was talking about by its complexity. This story puts us in a position where we can be biased if we want, right? If we want to come and, you know, wield our own chronological snobbery like a mallet, we could do that. We could lay about us and just bash everything to rubble. Oh, listen to these barbarian idiots. They don't really know what's true, right? Look at those fools believing that Istra healed them when she laid hands on them, right? Listen to this horrible, horrible, superstitious, malicious babble about um, the great, the great offering, right? And the expiation of the sins of the people and how they're going to turn away the plagues because of this, right? Horrible, horrible. Um, we know better. We modern, sophisticated, enlightened people know better than that, right? I believe that this is one reason why Lewis has built in those careful parallels to the Hebrew Bible in the things that the priest of Ungit has said. If we're going to dismiss the great offering, especially as a Christian audience, and there's reason to think that Lewis would have anticipated at this, remember this is near the end of Lewis's life, after decades and decades of being one of the most famous and well-read and um, uh, you know, well-respected Christian authors in the English-speaking world. Um, uh, so I'm pretty sure Lewis knew that many of the people who read this book would be Christians, right? So in some ways, he's put in a kind of safeguard against the the attitude, the chronological snobbery attitude I just described. Um, uh, he, if we're inclined to read that description of the great offering and say, oh, that's horrible. How could anyone think that we're then uncomfortably reminded that a story exactly like that is in the Bible. If we reject the priest of Ungat's speech about holy wisdom being thick and dark like blood, well, actually, yeah, there is a lot about that sort of thing. Uh, not just in the Hebrew Bible, but in the New Testament as well. Uh, the all the stuff about the crucifixion of Jesus and the cross, right? Yeah, that's a little uncomfortable. We can't just disregard it completely, right? Um, why should the accursed not be both the best and the worst? Um, when Jesus died on the cross, was he the perfect offering? Or was he the embodiment of the sins of of sin, right? I mean, I, why should they not both be true? Um, why should to 
golly, who would believe two totally explicitly contradictory things at the same time? Answer, all Christians ever, <laughs> right? Is, was Jesus human or was he divine? Gosh, right? Is God one or three, right? I mean, exactly. Yeah, Arthur, I see you staying out of this one. Again, it's interesting, Arthur. I mean, he... Uh, Again, the way that he he's he goes back to the Hebrew Bible and with a lot of these things too, but yeah. Um, anyway, as I say, there's a certain I feel very clearly that Lewis has here in the lang- in the words that he has chosen to couch the priest of Ungut's language, put in certain safeguards against our casual disregard of him. Now, to modern non-Christians, it might be easier <laughs> to go there. Right. Um, but um, uh, but anyway, it's um, I still think the clear evidence is we Orwell certainly does not just reject what the priest of Ungut says. Um, and. Um, yeah. And I don't think we're meant to either. Um we're given the fox's account, his rational thinking, the clarity of his rational thinking, and it feels like a breath of fresh air. But the priest isn't wrong either. This doesn't mean the fox is totally wrong on his own account, right? There is something to be said for both. And of course, notice the king says that he's neither a priest nor a Greekling. He says Greekling dismissively, right? Priest isn't anywhere close to a Greekling. Orwell is, right? Unlike the king, Orwell has been fully raised by the fox in the learning of the Greeks, but she has also been raised in Glom, you know, a short walk away from the house of Ungat, um, and has fully absorbed the culture and values um, and worldview of the religion of Glom. She is the one who stands between the two of them. And look at the position she takes throughout. Never does she simply side with one against the other. Ever. Um, She loves and accepts the fox, but the fox is frequently wrong. And this is one where she explicitly tells us, as soon as the fox said that wonderful thing that made us all cheer, Orwell's like, oh man, he blew it completely. He just doesn't get it. Um, okay. So where are we left? What happens? And where do we go from here? Um, we'll wrap up, but we're just about done with this stuff here. Um, it's so much to talk about, and I know I'm not discussing each passage in, in intimately, but um, there's a lot. Uh, From here, we're going to go on. Of course, at the end of this passage, at the end of this scene, he tells us that the lot has fallen upon Psyche. Psyche is the accursed. And um, as we already knew, because she was called the accursed by people in the street. Um, So the lot has fallen upon Psyche. She is the accursed. And um, uh, she is going to be but yeah, the king didn't know. Yeah, it was it was it was a shock to the king. Um, and um, 
she is going to be sacrificed in the great offering. Um, let's go up to the great offering. Well, okay. So we're going to get the final conversation between Orowal and Psyche before the great offering is made. Um, I don't know if for sure if we'll get past that. But in case we do, um, in case we do, let's... Um, oh, sorry, here's um, that's Fellowship of the Ring. That's just the wrong book. Hang on a second. Um, I'm trying to open the book, but it's not helping. Um, okay, because I'm opening the wrong book. Um, I, I'm, I'm forgetting, sorry, which chapter I'm going to go to. Um, and let's go th through, through, through seven, I think. Um, uh, yeah, so chapter seven is the conversation between um, Psyche and Orwal. Um, chapter eight is the great sacrifice. Um, no, it's not. Okay, let's go through chapter 8. Read through chapter 8 next time. So read 6, 7, and 8 next time. I don't know that we'll get necessarily that far, but we'll we'll take a stab at it. So through chapter 8, um, up to um, up to chapter 9. Um, wait, no, that we have... That is That does include the Great Sacrifice. Yeah, okay. Yep, through chapter 8. That's where I want to go. Okay, excellent. Um... Thanks, folks. Uh, I will, uh, will, will, will continue this very challenging on several levels uh, discussion next time. Thanks, everybody. Through Chapter 8, and I will hope to see you guys next week. Bye now.